Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at montrosechurch.org. Have a great day. So uh, we're thinking uh, this morning about gracious priority. We're wrapping up this series, Gracious Living, and uh, what I really want to talk to you about is how to not lose your mind. So, yeah. So, because uh, it's, uh, you know, it's the kickoff of the holiday season, and uh, Thanksgiving is this week, and uh, some of us have already lost our minds, and uh so I'm thinking about this quote uh, that comes from the movie, The Great Debaters. Uh, I and every professor on this campus are here to help you find, take back, and keep your righteous mind. And uh, that'd be, uh, I think, maybe what Jesus is trying to help us do in the Sermon on the Mount, to, to find and take back and keep our righteous mind, the, the right mind, the one that works one that functions in the way it's supposed to. I like this quote from Andrew White that says, we have a tendency to hang very heavy weights from very thin wires. And if you were to just think about your life and your story and what happens to you and what's going on, there's a lot of heavy weights hanging on some very thin wires. And so we're just thinking about that as we think about priority, because I think when Jesus closes out the Sermon on the Mount, he really is talking about priority, but what he's really talking about is how priority affects the soundness of our minds and of our spirits and how it leads us into worry. And so one of the questions I'd like to ask this morning, whether you're here in the room or joining us on the live feed, is uh, just this question, where do you find the room in your life to live and to breathe, and to choose? Where do you find the space that allows you to live, and to breathe, and to choose? And so we're thinking about that together and what it looks like. This little series has been about gracious living, and we've taken it, and we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount as the finishing school for believers. But with with that said, the only reason that that's significant is because uh, it seems like sometimes we probably need to revisit it to think about if we're continuing to polish up our journey in our life, because it is also foundational and elementary to our faith. It's not just the end result. It's actually where we start and where we end. And, and Matthew, as we talked about at the very beginning of this series, he, he puts this whole thing together in the imperfect tense, which is illogical, and it is bad grammar in the Greek. It should have been in the aorist tense, because that would mean he taught, which is something you do and then you stop doing. But he did it in the imperfect tense to tell us that he taught and kept on teaching. These were the truths that are going to be taught over and over and over and over. And he did that on purpose so that we would get that sense of it and that message of it. So we're thinking about that and what that looks like. I, I think about sometimes our maturity. Uh, it, it reminds me of a haircut issue. Uh, and I don't know if you've observed this. Maybe I've mentioned this to you before. But it seems like that for a lot of people... At some point, they get their last hairstyle. <laughs> Have you noticed that? And then, I mean, they just at some point, they said, nope, this is it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not changing one more time in my life. And for some people, that was like 1974. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, you, you literally, you can look around and go, yep, 82. That was, 
person said, that's it, I'm done, 82, that was my last hairstyle, I'm not changing again for the rest of my life, I am keeping this hairdo. I somebody after first service, they came up and they, they had a rather shaved head, and they said, yeah, I understood about that haircut thing. And I said, you've been around so long, you're back in style, you know, very trendy now. But I think our personalities are like that, aren't they? I mean, for some of us, we just at some point say, this is it. I am who I am. I'm not going, I'm not growing one more inch. You know, I find myself as I get older, I, I have a tendency to think I've earned being grumpy. You understand? I mean, I just feel like, you know what? Yeah, I was nice for a long time. I'm not being nice anymore. But then I realize, you know, you probably should keep evolving, right? You probably should keep maturing, and you never really reach that point where you don't... I mean, you really don't want people to look at you and go, you know, you probably stopped maturing in about 1982. That was probably about your last little piece of personal growth. So I think Jesus is inviting us into that. And we talked about, you know, the word gracious as we talk about gracious living and gracious priority. It's the funniest definition in the dictionary I've ever found. Because it's all synonyms. Like, if you're too dumb to not know what gracious means, here's 17 other words that will tell you. Courteous, polite, civil, chivalrous, well-mannered, decorous, gentlemanly, ladylike, civilized, tactful, diplomatic, kind, kindly, kind-hearted, warm-hearted, benevolent, considerate, thoughtful, obliging, accommodating, charitable, indulgent, magnanimous, benefit, beneficent, benign, friendly, pleasant, amiable, affable, cordial, hospital. In other words... You really do know what it means, don't you? You really do get it, what it means to be gracious and what that looks like. So we've talked through these things. Here's a few things that I think help. Darlin Oates wrote these words. Desire dictates our priorities. Priorities shape our choices. And choices determine our actions. I think that's not only a great quote. I think it's good science. So if you really want to change your actions, you don't really start with your actions, although some of us try to think that way. You have to back up to choices, and then you have to think about what are the desires underlying the choices. And then when you start to try to shape your desires, that's where things get tricky, isn't it? What do I want from life? What do I really want? What do I value? And then how do I shift that into something that allows me to take back and keep my righteous mind because sometimes our choices, our desires contribute to our own lack of space to live and breathe and to make choices. Pretty fundamental. Eric Hoffer writes these words, the necessary has never been a person's top priority. The passionate pursuit of non-essentials and the extravagant is one of the chief traits of human uniqueness. (laughs) Now, we're going to leave that up there for a minute because you probably need to read it once or twice. Because that is sort of true, isn't it? Like most of us are not really spending our life in the pursuit of what is necessary. We find ourselves preoccupied with the non-essentials and the extravagant. In fact, Hoffer says that is one of the unique things about human nature. We pursue things that have to do with non-essentials and extravagant. And if I just analyze my life and I were to, you know, make a little spreadsheet and put how many things are non-essential or extravagant, I wonder how that would balance out in the big picture of what's going on. And then just to make it fun, it is difficult sometimes in our lives for us to really understand what has great worth. And so I love this quote from Albert Einstein. Not everything that can be counted counts, 
and not everything that counts can be counted. And that's probably really what we want to talk about today, is that there's a temptation in life to live in the analytical world, whereas Jesus is always urging us to live in a relational world, and often the things that can be counted don't count, and the things that can't can't be counted. But we like to count because we like to know how we're doing, and we're drawn to the analytical because it measures us in some way. And yet the things that we can't countermeasure are often the very nature of worth and value in our lives and in our journey and in our relationships. I came across an article in Forbes magazine, uh, and the title of the article is The Power of Putting People First. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, it struck me when I came across the article a couple of things immediately. I need to read this article, number one, because it's in Forbes magazine. Why is a magazine dedicated to capitalism, writing an article about the power of putting people first. It's written by a, an author named Rasmus Haugard, and it turns out what he was doing was he's analyzing uh, the Marriott Corporation. And uh, I don't know how much you know about the Marriott Corporation. It started as a nine-stool root beer stand. Last year, they grossed about $23 billion in revenue. Uh, that's, a, that's a big root beer stand. <laughs> But they have a motto, and the motto of the Marriott Corporation from its inception has been people first. And that's articulated in this phrase. If we take care of our people, they will take care of our customers, and our customers will come back. So that's their, that's their company motto. So read with me a piece of the article. Will you do that? Here, here it is. Marriott's people-centric approach has continued despite facing some strong social headwinds that could have otherwise stalled its progress. After the publication of Theory of the Firm in the Journal of Financial Economics, which argued that companies were owned by and responsible to shareholders before anyone else, shareholder wealth has steadily become, the more, import, has steadily become more important than employee health. This change has had significant impact on both companies and societies, but there are two primary problems with shareholders' first thinking. The first is a widespread focus on short-term results at the cost of long-term benefits. The second is a lack of incentive for corporate social responsibility. Both problems tend to come at a cost for the general employee. This is in, the, in direct opposition to the idea of fostering people-centered corporate cultures. But Marriott has resisted this trend and instead continued to value the well-being of people over quick and easy profits. With over 6,000 locations and nearly $23 billion in yearly revenue, Marriott's success with its people-centric approach is, the, is best seen in the daily commitment of its leaders in ensuring that the organizational values live up to its original values. They do this in four ways. So you can think about this. Number one, there is a priority in the organization to cultivate more human leaders. On any given day around lunchtime, 86-year-old executive chairman Bill Marriott finds his way to the cafeteria on the ground floor of the Bethesda, Maryland headquarters. He picks up a tray. He chooses some food. He stands in line. He pays for his meal just like every other employee. He then finds a table and has his lunch with anyone who wishes to join him. Despite being the executive chairman and one of the richest people in the country, Bill eschews special treatment. He shows up for lunch, as he does for board meetings, as an ordinary person. I don't know 
how many of us would uh, say what we're committed to in our life, in our home, in our family is cultivating more human people. <laughs> I love the last part that is written by Howgood. He brings interest, presence, and care rather than status, hierarchy, and power. <laughs> I want to read that again. He brings interest, presence, and care rather than status, hierarchy, and power. Now, now a lot of us come Thanksgiving Day, we're not going to have hierarchy or power or status. That's not going to be our deal. But it's probably also not going to necessarily be our deal that we're bringing presence and care and interest to the people with whom we're sharing this celebration. Number two, they keep this people first together by balancing the stakeholders, simply realizing that the stakeholders are not just stockholders, but also employees and everyone else that's affected by the organization. They are all stakeholders, and we keep those things in balance. As you go into this week and into the holiday celebration in general, will you think about all the stakeholders, all of the stakeholders, from the youngest to the oldest, from the family you like best to the ones you'd rather not sit by? Will you think about all of the stakeholders? Number three, they demonstrate commitment. Marriott was among one of the very few corporate entities that in 2018, when there was a major tax cut, passed that tax cut on to their employees, one of the very few. It takes a long-term commitment of sacrifice to put people first, and it often means benefiting others rather than yourself. This is in Forbes magazine, by the way. Did I mention that? Number four, they simply commit to put people first. The conclusion of the article, it would be wonderful, of course, if establishing this type of culture was as easy as creating a few great slogans or aspirational values. If it were, every company would make those great places to work lists, but it's not that easy. It's not about turning value statements into attractive posters or inspirational websites. Instead, it's about taking action. It's about creating leadership expectations for humility and compassion. It's about developing employee programs that support growth and well-being, both in work, in the workplace, and at home. This is a challenge, and it seems very complex. But at the end of the day, just put people first. Just put people first. And so I think as we think about that, it turns out putting people first is actually a quite an effective business strategy, but it's a really good life strategy. And it's what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 6. Now, he could, have, he could have opened the Sermon on the Mount with this, this lesson in priority because what a great place to start with the right priorities. But for whatever reason, it's at the end of the sermon. So listen to it. It's sort of woven together. And I think when we read this section of the Sermon on the Mount, like so many others, we are sort of culturally one step away from what's happening. So listen with an open heart and then we'll see if we can bring it a little closer. Matthew six nineteen. Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, 
or drink or about your body, what you will wear? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow? They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all his splendor was not dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today, and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness And all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Amen. (laughs) So there's a lot of things going on in there, and I just come back to the question, and that is, where do you find the space to live, to breathe, and to choose? We hang very heavy weights on very thin wires. The first thing that Jesus is talking about in this process is treasure and priority. And so immediately his, his crowd would have understood sort of some code words that are happening. Specifically, they would understand moth and they would understand vermin and they would understand thieves. And they would understand those three words in a way that we don't really understand them. And the reason is because they represent the three greatest elements of wealth in the first century. The first thing they represent are the moths. And the moths represent that wealth was found in fabric. In clothing. So you remember probably in the New Testament, there's a story about Paul, and he goes and he finds a woman, her name is Lydia, and she is a seller of purple. Remember that? Okay, well, the seller of purple is a person who traffics in purple cloth, which in the first century was uh, an art form. You, not very many people could make purple. And, uh, and so people who could make purple were wealthy. And maybe you remember in the Old Testament, there are stories about giving suits of clothing as signs of wealth, as reward for great you know, great events. So uh, that's weird to us because that's not how we do clothes. Our wealth is not in our clothes. That's why we have goodwill because we take clothes and then we give them because we need to clean out because we have so much of that stuff that, you know, we are purging constantly. But that was not true in the first century. To have tapestries, to have rugs, to have uh, elegant clothes was a sign of great wealth. And of course, then if you had that as your storage of wealth, you had one thing that could occupy your brain, and that was have the moths gotten to it. Uh, This uh, winter, I went to get all of my sweaters out, and uh, the moths had gotten in the closet, and all of my sweaters have been eaten. Yeah, I know you're terribly disappointed. They're not seen. You're like, where'd those sweaters go? Yeah, the moths ate them. Thankfully, that wasn't like my wealth, you know, <laughs> because, they were, because I didn't know. I mean, I was in the closet frequently, and I never heard them in there, you know, gnawing away or anything. I mean, they don't like wave a flag and say, hey, we're in here, <laughs> you know. And so uh, the reality was imagine if your wealth is wrapped up in fabric and clothing, you would need to constantly be checking to make sure. And Jesus is saying, look. That's a hard way to live. It's a hard way to live when you're trying to live, but constantly you're needing to pay attention to that because you're worried that it's going to be. And, and then he says, and vermin. The second great storage of wealth was in grains. 
if you had a lot of corn or wheat or oats or grain, barley, this was how life worked. Life was traded in commodities. It wasn't traded in currency. It was traded in commodities. And so if you were a holder of great wealth, you might be a person who has great... Remember the parable about the man who who had great riches and he tore down all of his barns and he built bigger barns and then he tore those down and he built bigger barns. He's storing up grain, his wealth. And the rats would get into the, into the grain and the problem was you couldn't see them. They didn't like eat at the top of the pile. They, they burrowed into the center of the storage and then they ate their way out. And so by the time you found them, it was too late. And so the only way that you could know that there were no vermin in your grain was you had to sift it. You had to go through it. And you had to go through it to make sure. And then once you were done, you had to go back through it. And then once you were done, you had to, and you had to keep going through it. So, so immediately they would have said, oh, yeah. I mean, that's a stress factor right there. <laughs> I mean, you think your clothes are safe, and then uh, you got moss, and then you think your grain is safe, and then you don't know what's in there. You just never know what's in there. Ah, it's like when you have a rat in your house. <laughs> ah, where is he? <laughs> and then Jesus moves to a third place, and he talks about thieves. And he says where thieves break in and steal. That, this is for the people who have decided on a hard asset. They've said, no, I'm not in, I'm not, I, I am not into that whole thing. I'm going with a much safer investment. I'm going to have gold or currency. That's what I'm going to have. I'm going to get a hard asset, and then I'm going to just have my asset in this hard asset. <laughs> And then Jesus, now the Greek here is very vivid. It doesn't say break in. It says literally they dig through the wall. And just a reminder to the crowd that, okay, so you, you've acquired hard assets. Where are you going to keep those? Oh, in your house? Oh, at the bank? Guess what the walls are made out of? Dirt, mud, plaster. And the thieves can just, I mean, you can put a big old door, but you could just burrow through the wall. So the crowd would immediately go, oh, that is hard. Imagine that you've got great wealth and a hard asset, and you're keeping it over at your house, and you know that anyone can dig through any of the walls. And so you just decide, the only way I can protect my asset is I have to stay at home. And now your wealth is your prison. And that's what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about building a life in an analytical way in which the distraction of it is always pulling you away from the things that matter most, the things that are really vivid. So he moves then to the second point, and that is the way you see. How do you understand priority, and how do you move things around, and how do you decipher things? Well, you use your vision, and it's a necessity that you see clearly. And so he says, if your eyes are good, then they let light into your whole body. But if your eyes are bad, then how great is the darkness? Now, the, the Greek here is really interesting because what it's translated here is, is healthy and unhealthy. If your eyes are healthy, they see. If they're unhealthy, they don't see. So, so what he's talking about is he's saying, listen, so you look at your life and you think about your prior, priority and you think about how do I not lose my mind? How do I figure out how to live, breathe, have choices? Well, the only way I can do that is by thinking about it. The only way I can do it is by putting my perception out there. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more damaged my perception is. Anybody else having that issue? And it's sort of a matter of, it's kind of like the haircut. At some point, you just decide, well, I've lived long enough, I've decided I'm right. We experience this with our children. You know, my children are trying to tell me about the world they're growing up in, and, and what I, you know, I want to listen, and I want to be sympathetic. 
but I walked five miles to school in the snow, <laughs> uphill. Had to follow the fence line because I couldn't see the road. You know, that's not true. I grew up in Texas, but, but you understand the mentality. I mean, my kids want me to understand, but, but, but there's a part of my perspective that's like, ha! You think that's bad? You know, or I find myself giving my children this kind of advice. Well, it's going to get worse. <laughs> Super uplifting, you know. Think you got it bad now? <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> because somewhere in there, you know, if my perspective becomes solidified, if my perspective becomes that I think I'm... And listen, that's what's happening in our culture right now. And so how do you, how do you help your eyes see better? It's not like you can go to the, you know, soul doctor and, you know. <laughs> so Jesus then, in the Greek here, where we've translated healthy and unhealthy, it's two different words, really. The two words are generosity and stingy. And so what it literally says is when your eyes become generous, then you begin to see the world differently. Now, this idea of generosity isn't tied up in a monetary thing. It's tied up in this reality. Am I generous with my spirit? Am I generous with... Do I see the world in a spirit of generosity? Yes, I can share. Yes, I can give. Yes, I can do that. Yes, I see you. Yes, I can put my perspective. Yes, I have empathy. Yes, yes, yes. And what is unhealthy? Stingy. No, I don't have enough. There's not enough of my time. There's not enough of my spirit. There's not enough of me to go around. And when we begin to have this stingy perspective, we become introverted and the darkness fills us. And you know what? You would think by hanging on to yourself... You take better care of yourself, but it turns out, no, you just damage your vision. So you can no longer see clearly. You can't find and keep your righteous mind because the information coming in is tainted. And it's tainted by a spirit of stinginess, by a spirit of scarcity. And I don't know about you, but this part of the sermon scares me because I have this, I have this disease I think a lot of us do, that in fact, it is so easy for us to not look at others with generosity, to not be generous in our assessment, our spirit, our love, our grace, our mercy, our optimism. We're not generous with that stuff. We're stingy. We want people to see it our way, to do it our way, to think our way, to, to take on our perspective. I mean, I hope everybody's looking forward and having an awesome Thanksgiving. I, I just hope that's, that's what's, you know, in your head right now. You're like, I can't wait. But for some of us, we're kind of anxious about the, the week ahead and, you know, the holiday season. Because there's a lot going on. Will we walk in on Thursday with a great heart of generosity, a great seeing with generosity? Not just some of the people but all of them, really, really thinking about what that might look like and what that might be like. Because once our eyes become tainted, it's really difficult for us to see others and to be appreciative of others and who they are. And then he goes on, you cannot serve two masters because you will either hate the one and love the other. I like this part of the conversation. It's a continuing thought 
Don't build a life that's going to preoccupy you so that you are not free to live and breathe and choose. That's the first part. And make sure you keep your eyes in a generous spirit so that you can see clearly what those choices look like. So that you are getting good information into your heart and mind so that your choices actually are righteous choices. They are the correct ones. You're not skewed. Your vision and idea is not skewed. But remember this. You can't serve two masters. And I think, you know, I think about how does this apply to us? Because, you know, nobody's going to dig through the wall of our house and, you know, we don't have our wealth and our cloth and, you know, and then when he gets into this conversation about worry, don't worry about food. How many of us worry about food? I mean, we worry about food, but not because we don't have it, right? Amen? I mean, if you don't worry a little about what you're going to eat, then I don't know who you are. And some of us worry about it because we're trying to eat better, and some of us worry about it because we want to make sure what we eat is good. And I don't mean healthy. I just mean good. <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean, comforts my soul kind of thing, you know. And so I think, well, what is the parallel? How does this relate? Because we don't have those sort of worries about getting food and having enough clothing to wear. That's not what happens to us. We don't live in that culture, in that world. And then I think, actually, they had way less to worry about than we have. We live in structures and life in such a way that we have a myriad of things to worry about. Like, what if your computer crashes this week? What if you drop your phone in the toilet? I mean, honestly, there's a sense in which the world in which we live in is this incredibly complex place in which we live so often at the breaking point. I mean, if one more thing goes wrong, we could completely tip off. Most of us are, we're, we're just one breakdown from, from just going screaming into the night, you know? I mean, you hear this expression among people. If one more thing goes bad... that's how we live. We live right on the brink of sanity. We live right on the brink of too much. Where am I finding the space to live and breathe and choose? Because my life is full. And so Jesus at this point says, just remember, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to serve this analytical world or you're going to serve a relational world. And one will preclude the other. Amen. We have 22 people coming to Thanksgiving. 22 people coming to Thanksgiving. I know. I know. That's impressive. I like most of them. So uh, we usually have a big crowd for Thanksgiving, and that's good. And we always have Thanksgiving in the backyard. I understand this year it's going to be rainy and cold. I just want to ask you this question. In what world... Is it rainy and cold on Thanksgiving? <laughs> Not this world. I mean, we have had times where it's been way too hot in the backyard. 90 degrees on Thanksgiving, you know. So what are we going to do with 22 people? Well, that's been a conversation we've been having. What are we going to do with 22 people to feed? Because there's no room in our house in which you can feed 22 people. And then what are you going to feed them? I mean, you know, Thanksgiving food is not easily finger food. It's not, you don't carry around your plate with finger food on Thanksgiving. It's, you need a fork and a knife and space and girth. 
And I'm, I'm just guessing that's just one little analytical part of something that really isn't the point. Isn't that funny? Because you're doing it too. It's not just me. You're doing it too. Where are they going to sit? How are we going to do it? What are we going to cook? Where are we going to go? Look at the... And what's so silly about that is why are we having the feast in the first place? To get the people together. The feast is to get the people together. And now the feast is going to take precedent over the getting. We're not going to have enough energy left for the people because we're going to be so analytical about the process of the feast. And isn't that life? I mean, isn't that life? And it's exactly what Jesus is saying. So you can live in this analytical mode, but know this. <laughs> know this. If that's what happens to you, then your eyes get darkened and you forget about what the real priority is. And you start to spend a lot of your time over here. And this is no place to live. You can lose your mind over here. You will not have space to live, breathe, and choose because you will simply live your schedule. And I don't know about you, but I have whole weeks and months that I don't know what happened. And people say, what happened? I can look it up on my computer and tell you. Because I have a to-do list. I have a calendar. And I just look at what's next. Oh, here's where I got to go be and do right now. <laughs> Some people say to me, well, what, kind of, what does your week look like coming up? I don't know. I'm not looking at my calendar until Tuesday morning. I'll be depressed if I have to look at that calendar. <laughs> I'm going to not look at that calendar as long as I can. But what a way to live. What a way to live. To live by a list of to-dos. To lose somewhere the, your ability to be engaged in your life because you have become utilitarian. Because you've become so task-oriented. Which is still about what? I mean, I love, the, I love when I get those books about simplify. Do you like that? I mean, you know, let's all simplify. I think we should do a sermon series sometime called Simplify. Here's what I run into with simplify. It's too complicated. <laughs> Anybody else? I'd sell my house, but that would be too complex to figure out where to live. I'd rather just go home and stay here. Amen? I could get a new car, but I don't want to. It's too complex. I don't want to go through it. You know? And so he says, you can't serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one. Now, I love this reality because some people reduce this teaching to being about wealth. It's not about wealth. Some people get very wealthy and they do it in a very relational way. You know, remember that the, the scripture says the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say money is the root of all evil. It says, you know, which I love when we talk about that at church. You know, the love of money is the root of all evil. Ushers, will you please come? Please unburden yourselves now. <laughs> you can leave better than you came. <laughs> but it doesn't say that money is the root of all evil. It says the love of money. So this isn't really a conversation about wealth. It's about how you give yourself to the processes of life. And Jesus is saying, don't do that. And finally, then he comes to the very last section, which is about worry. And then he just says, why do you worry so much? This sermon is repeated in Luke chapter 12, and at that point he says, And who of you, by taking thought, can add a single hour to your life? And then he says this, If you cannot do this thing which is least, why do you worry about the rest? And I think there's a real sense in this of saying, there's a part of this where 
if I were to just ask you, how much of your mental space is devoted to worry? It's all the same conversation. I am here to help you find and take back and keep your righteous mind. I think that's what Jesus is saying. I think he's saying, listen, I want you to see life in such a way that it becomes healthy for you. That there is space for you to live and breathe and choose. Where life is not just simply pushing in on you and you are living in a way that is reactive. I want you to be proactive. And here's some ways in which that happens. And then he gets to this last part of worry and he says, so seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be added. I know that all these things matter. You've got to have a place to live. You've got to have close to where. You've got to whatever our analytical pieces are. He gets to the end and he says, I know you need all of that. I'm just telling you, if you want to be in your right mind, that better not be your priority because it will darken your eyes. And once your eyes get dark, the inside is really dark. It gets very dark. And when you talk to me about what is the greatest commandment, I'm going to tell you this. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. I'm always going to tell you that life is about relational realities. It's not about analytical, logistical realities. And so when you're pulled in these directions, I want you to have a gracious priority. And the gracious priority is not to spend your whole life in a logistical pursuit that twists up your insides. Your priority is to love well. It's to see the world with generosity. It's to be generous in spirit. It is to be human. To balance the stakeholders. To give a priority to people. To not think about status and power and hierarchy, but interest and time and care. And I think when we begin to do that, something dramatically changes. There actually is space for us to live and breathe and choose. And so my prayer as we move into this holiday season, as we open in one week Advent and celebrate this week Thanksgiving, is that God would bless you and your home with a gracious priority. God, would you help us? As we respond to your word and we close, we invite you to do work in us. We recognize that really our prayer is that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might change what we see. We can't really look out through generous eyes except that you help us to look out through generous eyes. We don't want to walk out of this place or walk away from this live stream determined to do better. We want to invite you to do work in us that changes us, that renews our mind, that gives us space to live and breathe and choose. Remind us that we are hanging very heavy weights on very thin wires, and it is okay for us to take them down, that our life need not be so tenuous. As we respond to your word, I pray that you'd help each of us to covenant with you. Maybe we just do that as we sing these powerful words. 
Maybe we need to seek out one of the prayer counselors around the room, but would you remind each of us that these are precious moments in which your Holy Spirit gives us moments of epiphany? And we need to take advantage and lock some things down and respond and make some commitments. So in these moments, would you hear our prayers? and our responses and lead us. We pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said together. Thanks for joining us at the Montrose Church Podcast. For more information, please visit us at www.montrosechurch.org. Have a great day.